listening to Radio Maria England and this is Father Toby with your word for today. And uh, although it's the, the feast of uh, St. Mark today and great feast that that is, I want to share with you today my reflection on, on last Sunday's gospel, one of the, the most beautiful gospels in the, in the whole of scripture and perhaps one of the most important as well. Um, it's the, the road to Emmaus and it's taken from Luke chapter 24. Two of the disciples of Jesus were on their way to a village called Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking about all that had happened. Now as they talked this over, Jesus himself came up and walked by their side, but something prevented them from recognizing him. He said to them, What matters are you discussing as you walk along? They stopped short, their faces downcast. And one of them called Cleopas answered him, You must be the only person staying in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have been happening there these last few days. What things? he asked. All about Jesus as Nazareth, they answered, who proved he was a great prophet by the things he said and did in the sight of God and of the whole people, and how our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and had him crucified. Our own hope had been that he would be the one to set Israel free. And this is not all. Two whole days have gone by since it all happened, and some women from our group have astounded us. They went to the tomb in the early morning, and when they did not find the body, they came back to tell us they had seen a vision of angels who declared he was alive. Some of our friends went to the tomb and found everything exactly as the women had reported but of him they saw nothing. Then he said to them, You foolish men, so slow to believe the full message of the prophets. Was it not ordained that the Christ should suffer and so enter into his glory? Then starting with Moses and going through all the prophets, he explained to them the passages throughout the scriptures that were about himself. When they drew near to the village to which they were going, he made as if to go on. But they pressed him to stay with them. It is nearly evening, they said, and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Now, while he was with them at table, he took the bread and said the blessing. Then he broke it and handed it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. But he had vanished from their sight. Then they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us? as he talked to us on the road and explained the scriptures to us. They set out that instant and returned to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven assembled together with their companions, who said to them, Yes, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then they told their story of what had happened on the road and how they had recognized him at the breaking of the bread. On Saturday, I was cycling back from giving a confirmation class in Roehampton uh, to West Hampstead to a parishioner's house for dinner. Now, this is a 15-kilometre cycle, not an insubstantial journey, but evidently many more such journeys are needed, given that my mother's first comment on seeing me on Friday night was, you've put on a bit of weight, and that a parting gesture from one of the children at the house after dinner was to give my nascent Easter belly a little squeeze. 
Anyway, I tell the story not in the hope that gifts of chocolate dry up next Easter. I don't, and on which note, many thanks to those of you who sent something in or left something here for the team. But I tell it because a rather typical moment happened to me on this journey. Despite carrying a few more pounds than I strictly need, I'm still quite competitive, which can be a frustrating experience on a folding bike when you're up against road bikes. Anyway, I'd just overtaken with considerable effort another cyclist, and in my mind this had definitely been a duel, although it's quite possible the other cyclist was oblivious to me. But it was whilst cycling off triumphantly into the sunset that I realised I was also cycling down the wrong road. I was supposed to be on Shepherd's Bush Road, and this was not it. Now, the sane reaction on this realisation would simply be to stop and turn around. But not me. I'd fought too hard to overtake and was not about to slow and be overtaken and cede the victory as I turned embarrassingly a full 180. And so I carried on cycling in the wrong direction before eventually, some distance further on, turning left into another road in the hope that I would come back easily onto the correct road. Well, that didn't happen, and that's why my cycle was about a mile longer than it needed to be. Now, I'm conscious at this stage in the reflection, reactions could vary from he's very weird um, to, or yes, I do that too, or maybe some of the women are thinking that's just the sort of thing my husband or brother would do. I think women tend to be a little more sane in these matters, but perhaps I'm wrong. Anyway, another reaction might be, what's this got to do with the gospel? And that would be a fair reaction as well. The answer is that the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they were going the wrong way and they would have known this. Jerusalem is where they were supposed to be and instead they are heading away from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Jesus is reported risen in Jerusalem. They describe themselves as his disciples. And yet they are walking the wrong way. They are going away. Why? Well, in short, we don't know. But perhaps they were confused. Perhaps they were disappointed by not having yet seen Jesus themselves. What we do know is that things haven't turned out exactly how they expected. They, it seems, were looking for salvation from the Romans. But Jesus, as we know, only offers salvation from sin. And so now they are going their own way, and it is the wrong way. They should have known better because people they should have trusted, most notably the women who had seen the risen Jesus, had told them what had happened and where Jesus was. But they were heading the wrong way, and they seemed set on it. And there are lots of reasons we stay on the wrong way in all sorts of ways in our life. Pride, because saying I was wrong is too humbling. I suspect that's pretty high up there. I can think of dozens of arguments I've been in when I've ceased to be truly persuaded of what I started out arguing. I've realised, hang on, they might be right. But nonetheless, I battened down the hatches and argued strongly for my original position. And then begrudgingly, maybe an hour, maybe a day later, had to say to the other person, I think actually you might have had a point, although perhaps the word should have been, I was wrong, you were right. 
but those words don't uh, trip off the lips of many of us with particular ease. As I said, there are all sorts of reasons we keep going the wrong way. Sometimes I think we head the wrong way because we refuse to recognise our need, or we refuse to recognise our ignorance or our errors or our mistakes. This can happen in many more ways than simply walking. And it's the case that again and again, Jesus' miracles take place in a context of overturned assumptions, of loss and searching. But we can close ourselves off. We can refuse to acknowledge that we're lost or that we're searching or that we have any need and we keep on the wrong way. But of all the things I've mentioned, I think perhaps for us, the most profound need is to recognize our need. It's a form of pride, perhaps not the worst form, but it's pride nonetheless that stops us from recognizing our need for God and for one another. The modern world is very good at giving an illusion of control. Whatever it is, there's an app for that. A part, that is, from the most important things. There is no app for love despite sleazy imitators like Tinder. There's no app for friendship. There's no app for the meaning of life. There's no app for telling you whether spending an increasingly large amount of time on this app is a good use of your time. For our most profound needs, there is no app. But in a world with an app seemingly for everything, it can be easy to neglect needs that are not met by apps or some other tech. And it's the case, I think, in our world that where so many of our needs are really easily met, we tend to narrow down what we think of as our needs to those which can be easily met, and we don't spend as much time on perhaps our more profound needs. It's interesting in the Gospels when Jesus returns briefly to his hometown of Nazareth in the course of his ministry that he finds he could do no deed of power there because the people dismiss him. They take offense at him. Isn't this the carpenter, they say? In short, the people of Nazareth think they don't need to believe in Jesus. They assume they already know him and that they have no need for Jesus as they know him. They need no table or chairs and they think this is all the carpenter has to offer them. But Jesus is so, so much bigger, so much, much, much more remarkable, so much more divine than the little, nice, meek, mild box we tend to put him in. But back to the road. These disciples are going the wrong way. Certainly they should have listened to the women who had told them better. Wives, if you're listening with your husbands at the moment, try not to look too conspicuously at them and too hard. But they really should have listened to the women and believed them, because the women had no reason to lie, nothing to gain from it. But at the time it was also the case that women were not considered reliable witnesses. And these two disciples, Cleopas and his companion, certainly didn't seem to believe them. But we should not only believe those who have status, we should believe those who have no reason to lie, those whose motivations are trustworthy. We should believe those who live in a trustworthy way. And even more importantly, we should seek to be such people. Much of my last three years in parish ministry has taught me that you will hear wisdom, you will hear things worth listening to from people who maybe, maybe don't get the time of day 
in many walks of life. People who the world dismiss as not having anything important to say. But on the subject of listening to the women, it reminds me of a sign at the hairdressers just round the corner from the radio studio here in Cambridge. It says, men please enter and go to the left, because the women are always right. The next point I want to draw out from this story, though, is not just that they were going the wrong way. It's that Jesus is not abandoning them to their fate. And so he walks with them. And they don't see him, don't recognize him, perhaps because they do not yet have eyes that are ready to see him. And it's a fact that very often in life, we only see what we are prepared to see. In our relationships, we can become embittered and we only have eyes for the person's failing. We become shut off to any good they might do, any way they might surprise us with a good action. Or if they do, we find some reason to discredit it. We question their motivation. And how does Jesus make himself known to them? Well, first it's through the scriptures. He takes them through the scriptures and makes them realize how everything the Old Testament spoke of about the Messiah, how everything was being fulfilled in him. The life of Christ and who Christ was started to make sense to the disciples when they remembered the prophecies of their scriptures. And it's the same for us. St. Jerome said, ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. If you want to know Jesus better, read the Bible more, or listen to our series, Journeys Through Scripture. Read and listen to the Bible more, and you will be far more alive to him. You will have eyes far more open to see what Jesus is doing in you, those around you, and how he is active more generally in the world right now. But it's also the case that they only finally recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread. They only recognize Jesus in what was the second Mass explicitly recorded in the Gospels. The first was the Last Supper, and now two of his disciples, not present at that first Mass, recognize him at this second in the breaking of the bread the same breaking of the bread that occurs in each and every Mass in which Jesus becomes truly present to us. And I've heard of many conversions that have come through coming to Mass and the person formerly an unbeliever becoming conscious that something different, something otherworldly is going on here. They may have heard better preaching in other churches, but they've never been quite so tangibly in the presence of Christ. And yet, just as I've heard of conversions coming through being present at Mass, I've heard of yet more conversions coming through adoration. It's the case that at Mass, all too quickly, the priest places communion in our hands or on our tongue, and we have no time to contemplate, no time to think on the Scriptures and to look upon Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. But at adoration... When the large host is placed in the monstrance on the altar, we are given a chance to spend minutes, if not a full hour, in recognising Christ in the breaking of the bread. And I want now to, uh, to close by playing one of my uh, favourite songs, which I haven't listened to in a long time, but, but came to my mind as I was thinking about the, uh, 
the road to uh, Emmaus and it's uh, the Hollies. He ain't heavy. He's he's my brother. And I think in a, in a certain way we can we can think of this as uh, as Jesus speaking speaking to us that we're not a burden to to Jesus. We're not a weight to him. Rather, if we'll only let ourselves be carried, then we're a joyous load. He desires to be with us on the road and to lead us to the heavenly Jerusalem. The road is long my brother 